Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Dr. Terry Hermsen. Dr. Hermsen earned his MFA in poetry from Goddard College and his PhD from Ohio State University in Art Education. Terry is the author of A House for Last Year's Summer, Poetry of Place, and two other chapbooks. He co-translated El Cementerio Mas Hermoso de Chile with the Chilean poet Christian Formoso and teaches English, creative writing, and environmental literature courses at Otterbein University. He co-founded the Central Ohio Community Project four years ago as his interest in climate change activism grew, and he works with numerous other environmental organizations and universities seeking planet-focused solutions. Terry, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. So take us back to the beginning. Uh, when did you first discover your love of poetry and, and what did you first use it for? To save my life um, or to give meaning to my life, I guess is what comes to mind. Uh, it, like I think a lot of people, it starts in high school where you're asking those big questions, you know, like what happens when we die and, right. and why are we alive anyway? And why do people go to work and just to go to work to go get money? and it just hit me really hard uh, looking at the lives around me. And I don't think I'm unusual in any way on that. I, I just wanted something more. And I grew up in suburbs, uh, Michigan and Illinois. And much as I, I actually had a happy childhood, but I looked around me about that time and it seemed so mundane. You know, everybody's trimmed yards and there's there's no mast. You can't have, you know, if a tree falls down, you got to get it out of the yard. You can't let it decay the way it would naturally. Uh, and I, I don't think that's how the earth is. And, and I think I felt that without knowing exactly what I was feeling. I, and, I, and I grew up in the 50s. And I think that's the time when the United States decided to promote that kind of life, real clean, everything pruned, no, nothing out of place. And, and I found a poem from T.S. Eliot uh, at, the, at the community uh, newsstand in, in East Lansing, Michigan. They didn't have, we didn't have much bookstores. And I bought a book of, uh, of T.S. Eliot and read The Hollow Men. And it just hit me like crazy. I didn't understand it. You know, I, I assume people know it, but I'll do just a few lines of it. You know, we are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices as we whisper together are quiet and meaningless as wind and dry grass or rats feed over broken glass in our dry cellar. And I don't know if it's a terrible confession, but I fell in love with those words. And even though I didn't fully grasp them, I think they were speaking to me in a way about some other way of being or naming the way of being that I was kind of discontent with. And finding poetry, uh, this is the one you, you asked this question, you sent it to me, it's more like finding a well in your backyard that you didn't know was there. And you could dig down, dip down into that well and suddenly renew a sense of life again. And the last thing I'll say is I found a hill that was out beyond uh, up, a, up a hill beyond our suburb that I it was led into a field and I thought, oh my gosh, this is a different world. <laughs> and I know that's a terrible, strange surprise that there was another world and I would go to that field over and over again. Uh, and I don't know, that's where I think poetry began for me. Excellent. Yeah, I, th I think when you grow up in Privet Drive, anything that's out of place feels exotic. <laughs> yes, I, I think that's it. And poetry <laughs> was definitely out of place. <laughs> so 
So I, I, I wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind uh, reading a poem so listeners could get a feel for your style. Okay, I, 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 you had asked that. So I picked two, one for now and one for the end. And this one's from my first book. And I don't know why I keep being drawn back to it, but it some way speaks to where I am now, even though it was probably written 40 years ago. <laughs> uh, and it's about, it's from a, the first chapbook, which was called 36 Spokes, the Bicycle Poems. And it's about based in crossing the country by bicycle. And you would find these marvelous places. So this is about Dubois, Wyoming in the Wind River Basin. And there's a lot of backstory, which I somehow couldn't get into the poem. You'll just have to get what you get. But it has an epigraph from William Stafford that says, the earth says, have a place, be what that place requires. So Wind River Basin. Almost cold up here, Togati Pass, beside the road in shadow. About noon and the sun not yet over this mountain. From here we are in flight, whole basin swallowed, dark dream space of the Wind River Range, fully split from red striated badland cliffs on the far side of the valley. Elemental divisions, blood and shade, reptilian markings and first night eyes of the cougar. In Dubois they meet, rails toward infinity. We find in the gallery the young owner fresh from school, gather how here her life is spun outward. Classes she'll teach for the first time this winter, life drawing at the evening school out in the Mesa. Her anger at land carved just this year from the Arapaho reservation, uranium discovered that she dreamed last night, the two month fire in the forest, crags and sheep meadows high above the town, unreachable by anything but biplane and mule was here in this room. Wow, that's excellent. And, and I love the sense of the, the, the person, you know, the, the people that inhabit this place. Um, you know, there's there's a push and pull between the environment and them. You know, their 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 li their lives are spiraling outward, and they're drawing in you know the outside world. Yeah, and and it's an old poem, and I wish it was better, but it still calls me. And and that woman in her art gallery, dreaming the fire, was in the middle of her art gallery. Oh. Was I I wish I could have brought that across stronger because <laughs> you always want to revise a poem. But her, the thing I wish I would have put in there, found a way, is that her husband was one of the firefighters up there in the mountain. Okay. Mountains. You know, Walt Whitman did leaves <laughs> grass over the course of his whole life. You could just edit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I just keep working on it. Maybe 40, 30, 20 years from now, I'll get this poem right. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes that's what it takes. <laughs> uh, but I, again, I don't know. I mean, I'm gonna read a more recent poem at the end, but I, I still think uh, there's something there that, that, that the earth says have a place be what that place requires is still my mantra wow so you you said you did a you bicycled across the united states how, how did that go um it was marvelous so uh, i got the summer off from my bookstore job and my my wife my first wife uh got it you know she's off from teaching and we trained and it was about two and a half two months something like that and just taught me so much about the land, about loving the planet in a way that I hadn't gotten before. 
uh, and it just being out there in the elements. Is, and I carried a book of poems with me. I said, I carried three or four books with Walden and a book edited by William Stafford of Western United States poets. And it was poetry just seemed different in the middle of a forest. <laughs> <laughs> it does. And, and this is fascinating to me because I grew up in a very rural area, but I didn't really appreciate it. You know, I, I slept outside all the time and I, and I really liked going on hikes. The, the Nelson Kennedy ledges were, was pretty close by, right around the corner, like a mile away. So I could just walk there and go through the ledges in the morning when the mist was rising. And it was, it was beautiful. And I, I appreciated the beauty, but I didn't appreciate the environment. And, and I didn't have, so it wasn't until I moved to Cleveland, <laughs> I was surrounded by all this concrete. And I was like, oh my God, I feel kind of stifled now. It's, yeah, it's it's not as and my my first book was also kind of a, was about growing up in that area. And it, it I used a lot of elevated language because I was I, I, it seemed so mystical looking back. And I really. Yeah. Right. Well, I think mine was the opposite direction, but we'll get to that. Right. <laughs> it sounds like we're ending up in the same place, though, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I came, I think I came from the other. Anyways, we, yeah, I've got some other things to say with some of your other questions. but Oh, sure. So let's talk about the poetry hikes then, because you, you've you led countless poetry hikes. You said you've led them not just in Ohio, but California and Vermont. Um, so how, how do those walks inform your writing? And, and what have you noticed that the attendees get out of it? Well, and, and I will add one word to that phrase, it, they're poetry night hikes. Gotcha, okay. So they, uh, my first wife uh, had a lot of experience with uh, environmental education. She was a science teacher. And uh, so I learned some things, quite a few things from her. And one of them was about, uh, they, they just call them night hikes, not poetry night hikes and get, get kids outside and people, you know, adults too, uh, to experience this other world uh, that is so much erased or ignored uh, by our modern age. Uh, I don't think we like night. We, you know, I live in a suburb now too, and all all of our neighbors light up their, you know, their driveways for whatever reason. I can't figure out, but we don't like that. We associate with fear, with terror, and many of the students would come to these night hikes, good-hearted students, afraid to be in the dark. Huh. And we had to talk them into it and say, no, it's okay. You can walk without a flashlight. You can see if you use your night vision. And so we, they were kind of a balance. We always said, I invented them with a teacher friend and, we, you know, and then I expanded it and did a few of the others. Most of my ones have been in Ohio and some of them in Cuyahoga Valley National Park, by the way. Um, as a we saw them as a balance between silence and, and words and really letting the night in, you know, instead of walking down the trail, talking to each other, we would, you know, we would encourage or actually require people to be quiet for 10, 15 minutes of a walk. And then we did something called the seat and watch where people would sit quietly for maybe 10 minutes, far enough away from everybody else they couldn't see them, see each other, but they knew they were there, so there was safety. And that was important to the kids and then Sometimes we'd write at the we do that at the edge of dusk and write what you were hearing and the kids and and the adults when we've done it with adults have been uh, it's been so engaged it's, it's probably the best teaching I've ever done uh, and I love I love doing them I, I think it's getting to know to use that same metaphor of another that other well yeah 
the well of night, which is, you know, it's not there in our contemporary world to a large degree. That's, that's very interesting. And now, now I'm thinking of like the, the floodlights that come on my neighbors, like the, my neighbor across the street has these bright light, you know, <laughs> we, we install the timer light above our garage, which all we've seen are raccoons. So I'm kind of like, well, is this... <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I don't get it because all of human history throughout so much of human history until we got this notion, you know, literature was from around the campfire, you know, and there was a sense somehow that the night was sore. Sure, it's different and fearful to a degree, but it's also a blessing. And I think that's the main thing those, those night hikes do, along with including poetry within them. Do you, do you think it's do you think it comes down to a sense of control because I'm thinking you know like you you brought up mow, like freshly mowed lawns when I my wife and I go on walks and we've been getting into composting and trying to find alternative ways to use our space and we've been really impressed by people that replace their lawns with like you know long, like stretches of time and other, and other stuff that, that that's better for water absorption they can just kind of let it run free um, not just not just control over the environment, but control over the self where, you know, people being afraid of the dark and afraid to go on these hikes and they have to turn on the flashlight or is it something else? You know, I, I, I love that uh, concept. I think it's accurate, fairly accurate. I think there's a parallel between wanting to control the night, which is, you know, I mean, think of the settlers coming over and, uh, you know, having to deal with this, this world that was so dark and full of branches and, and animals and creatures. So control, we can, we did a great job of controlling this continent, quote unquote, great. Um, and I think I, I like that. I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but I think poetry allows you to not be quite in control of yourself. The language that comes out of poetry is frequently surprising to people. In, and I'm thinking of classrooms, especially. And that's one thing I think I try to do as a teacher is to make them comfortable with that surprise. So I, I like that. I think that, that that we have tried to tame this earth so much that we're taming it. I didn't think of saying this to death. Mm. Absolutely. Now, you, you also took, you, you took a group of students down to Chile and you guys you know, you went on, you went on hikes down there and you saw like landmarks. Um, how was that in contrast? Was it the moving to such a different spot overwhelming or, or was it, you know, a, a sense of familiarity? Like, oh, we're out in the wild. This is, you know, how did that go? Uh, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a important question. I, I did not end, I did not take students to Chile. My wife did. My, my oh, son. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I went along as poet in residence for the school where these education students were teaching. Okay. And it was just an incredible lucky accident, you know, that I was invited to be the poet in residence for a week at this school in Concepcion, Chile. And I've loved it. And I've been back at least three or four times to different places in Chile. And it is like discovering the other side of the hemisphere. And you said in your question that you sent me, you know, is Chile a, a, a country of poets? And it might've been, it maybe still is to a degree. I've gone up to hotel courts and said, what do you think of Pablo Neruda's poetry? And they can talk for five, 10, 15 minutes. 
Uh, and you can go, and I even did a little experiment with some students from the University of Catolica. To, we went out on the streets of, at Santiago for a day and they interviewed people about their reactions to Pablo Neruda. And you can find that. But with the kids, the students I was teaching, I taught, I taught there three or four times in different bilingual schools. They seem like US kids. And they're very disconnected from poetry. The ones I was teaching anyways. They want to be doctors and lawyers and make a lot of money and they're wrapped up in pop culture. And when you go to Chile, it's just shocking. It's so much like the US, at least parts of it, like Santiago and some of the other cities. Like you walk through Santiago and you're seeing posters of, of Anglo people, people who look like they're in downtown London. Big, gigantic posters, nobody on the street. I mean, they don't look like the people in the subways in, in Chile. It's almost like the US culture has taken over Chile. And that's part of what people were fighting against back in the 70s. But now they've lost, some, some Chilean poets I've talked to have said they've lost the war. Uh, when you go into a, a store, you hear Billy Joel on the, <laughs> on the, on the, uh, just the speakers. And, and, and it's all, almost like they've lost part of themselves. I'm sorry, this sounds kind of judgmental because I love the country and I love the people but I'm worried that as we USify, is that a word? USify the rest of the world, not only are we spreading our lifestyle of cars and um, you know, having your own lawn, so to you know, and, and, and uh, we are also uh, losing parts that are so deeply rich and valuable. Sure. Yeah, and I don't think that's a judgmental statement at all. I think that's a, that comes from a place of love. You know, I think when people are critical of not just their own government, and, and I think it's possible to have opinions about other countries that you love very deeply, I think that comes from a place of love, not criticism. Well, yeah, yeah, and especially since the U.S. had such a hand in shaping contemporary Chile. Yeah, yeah. We overthrew, you know, Allende, and uh, we uh, imposed a, an economic vision that's very U.S.-based. And I and I feel I feel yeah I do feel it as a friend and as uh, as somebody who loves the country. Yeah, not not to send the conversation in that direction, but our fingerprints are all over all over the world, but over the Western Hemisphere. I mean, we've had a lot of lot to do with politics in ways that we shouldn't have. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree, and you know, I think we've done such. I don't know Latin America well. This is that's why I'm saying I was lucky just to have a chance to get to know a part of the other part of this hemisphere and see it through new eyes uh, and um, I feel like we've done a huge disservice to Latin America Central and Latin and in South America that we need to face up to and maybe poetry can do a little bit of that yeah now, now you had you had said that because um, th I, I do like that I had found that uh, your, your statement um, that, that Chile, Chile was a nation of poets Going back to that statement, what do you, what sense do you get? What role do you think that what role did poetry play before the USification? Mm, yeah, that would that uh, that's a big study in and of itself. I really do think people told me that oh, you're the nation of poets, and and I I think it was rich. And if you, I've done a lot of reading of Pablo Neruda and some other you know of the the older generation of of Chilean poets and along with the poet I'm translating um, 
I honestly, you know, there's a story from Neruda where he went into one of the mines, the Lota mine, and he was going to give a reading and he had no idea how the miners would take it. And this one miner came up to him and shook his hand and said, we have known you for a long time, brother. Wow. And he said that was the culmination of his, of his career. Uh, you know, despite getting the Nobel Prize and all that. <laughs> and I, so I do think, again, you couldn't do that in the U.S. I mean, maybe you could walk up to an average U.S. Po- person and ask, uh, well, you know, what do you, what's your opinion of Robert Frost or Robert Creeley or somebody? They wouldn't know what you're talking about. Right. And, and even if they had heard of Robert Frost, I mean, they may have read one poem in high school 25 years ago and they wouldn't have an answer for you. So I think there's a difference. So I think that there's still something really valuable that that Chile and other Latin American countries can bring us in terms of what literature can do to connect to actual lives. That's what I hear in Chilean poets. Okay, well, that's interesting. So um, I, I want to turn a little bit to um, the environment because you, a lot of your projects have been set aside. You had, you had mentioned in our in your communications that you know you you recently you've been moving more toward just complete activism. So I, I kind of I'm, I'm interested in what facilitated that change and how how it's driving you. You know, it it, it, it can be professionally, creatively. What what's at the helm of that, besides existential dread, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> existential dread is right there at the center. But, um, well, I mean, I, I think poetry for me has always been deeply connected to places and getting to know where we are. When I, I taught poetry in the schools for about 20, 25 years, just traveling around Ohio and teaching kids to, uh, you know, about the nature of poetry and getting them to write it. And always every residency, we would go out, spend at least, you know, try to get a field trip into it and go to a local forest or a farm or a factory or downtown, wherever their town was. And I found something really strong happening when students were taken out of the sterile classroom and used poetry to see the world through new eyes. So I've been doing that for a while, doing the poetry night hikes. I taught seven summers, just a week, week, week long workshops for teachers at Cuyahoga Valley National Park, which apparently was not too far from you because we did night hikes at the ledges. Um, and I love that. So we were trying to give them tools to use creative writing in conjunction with science and nature and take that back to their own locations. And then I started teaching environmental literature at Otterbein, where I teach now. And I thought, well, that's enough. I'm doing my part. I'm getting people connected to the world around them. And it was beautiful. I loved all of it. And then we elected a president who said that climate change was a hoax. And we had, we began to realize the hold that the fossil fuel companies had on Congress. And in January of 2017, I said, no, I can't write poems now. I could have, I could have tried to write poems about this or out of my anger, I suppose, and maybe I will do that sometime. But I, I, or the alternate was to set that aside for a while and dig into getting concrete actions done. Feel like, you know, yeah, said existential dread. It's the, it's the challenge of history of, you know, 
all the years that have been, you know, millions of years of evolution being poured down the drain in front of our eyes. And I didn't know what to do with poetry. I still quite don't know much as it's at the heart of me and I care deeply about it. And I love hearing good poems still and teaching them and all that, but uh, I couldn't for at least a while. So I in some ways took the energy that I used to put into poems and tried to put it into activism. Okay. And I'm not saying I'm doing it from a poet's point of view, but what else could I do? Sure. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things where writing, I think, can very much feel like you're hitting your head against the wall sometimes. I, I, I tried writing a lot this past election cycle, and I wrote dozens of articles and a, a little less than half were published. And most of what I got was hate mail. And, and <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, I, I thought about that. And I, I, I thought, you know, at least they're encountering the message. That was the best I could you know, rationalize that. Um, and I'm interested in the, the Central Ohio Community Project because you co-founded that with some with some other people in Central Ohio. Um, and do you think, so, so how did that project begin and has it been more effective? I'm just, has it been more effective than poetry? What have you guys been doing? <laughs> yeah, that's, um, yeah, so, so the, the concept was to start local, you know, to go, I mean, we're not the first people to say that. People were saying you can either look to the national government and or the international community, neither of whom are doing enough or anything near enough. So I started reading in, in January of 2017. I gave myself six months of reading before I couldn't, I couldn't not act. And so we decided to, I teach at Westerville, Otterbein. My wife is assistant dean at OSU Marion, which is, you know, 50 miles from Westerville. And we live in Delaware, which is in between the two. And we know a number of friends at Ohio Wesleyan. So we're all, we're all three towns have, have colleges in them. We thought, let's connect the colleges and try to connect those to the cities and to the communities around them and try to get action across the region. That was, that was our idea. And we just went to everybody. In some ways, I think it was the poets. I, I will not claim any success. Maybe a few, there's a little inklings of success now, but it's been four years of struggle. Yeah. But we tr we were, were trying to let's go have conversations. Let's get people together. We had a we had four summits in those four years. Uh, trying, and we would have 80, 100 people, 60 people. Let's get something done, and then everybody would leave, and then we'd all be really excited, and nobody would do anything. It was, that was very disappointing, but I don't, I think it's starting to bear some fruit now. I and mean, we don't go into that necessarily, but I think it was in some ways bringing the kind of vision that we bring to our poems to visualizing. There was a lot of what I thought about is a lot of visualizing and kind of, you know how you visualize a poem and it becomes this whole and then it falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> and you start over again the next week and 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 it, that seemed like what it was happening we, we, we'd get something going or I, I i mean i spent i spent the same kind of energy i put into the poems before into visualizing and trying to make connections with people around the area on actions but a lot of it was coming almost from the same well yeah yeah i think i think 10 years ago one, one thing that makes me 
semi-positive about the environment, but I, I think the changes are too slow to really do what needs to be done. But one thing that does make me positive is that the way people talk about climate change now versus yes. years ago is wildly different. Uh, that's a very good point. I like that. I do think in the beginning, we were trying to just get people to be aware. And so we brought David Orr and he talked and we, at some of those summits. It, it, a lot of the people were informed, but not as much. So in so now, even though I am not part of this of, of Sustainable Delaware, but a lot of the people who were in all those original summits are now pushing for energy aggregation in downtown in Delaware and go putting it on the ballot. So I think in some ways, yes, it was like building up the steam or building up the knowledge base, if you want to put it that way, so that actions could start coming. What, what is the, because in Cleveland, Cleveland's, you know, more progressive part of the state. And I know when I, where I grew up was the total opposite, but where I grew up, that was also, I haven't lived there in 15 years. So I was surprised to see that the climate change was generally accepted. You know, when I went back and was talking to people from my hometown, wow. uh, what, what are attitudes like in central Ohio? I think there's a huge split. Um, Columbus is nowhere near as, as all I know about what I know about Cleveland and what is being done progressively with the food system, for instance, in Cleveland. Colum Columbus area is far more stuck in development. And so like in Delaware, where I live, it's the fastest growing county in the state, possibly in the country and land left and right is being bought up. And it's almost like the mentality that I was talking about in, in, you know, in that first question of consumption and you know, more cars and more houses and more concrete and more yards trimmed and pruned and grassified uh, is, is so strong that those of us who are trying to go the opposite, pull the opposite direction at times, I mean, this is true all over, but at times feel like the, the forces are too powerful. So I think central Ohio is a, to put it this way, a hotbed of development. <laughs> uh, just like it hasn't stopped here because it's growing, you know, that, that you know, it, it, and Columbus is just expanding outward and it will eventually be one gigantic strip mall. And I, the forces against that, I'm, I'm fearful, are too weak. Yeah, that's 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 a shame because I, I know Cleveland has um, you know, like the, the the NBA team, the sorry Cavaliers. They they started trees for threes where every time they score a three pointer, they plant a tree. And you know, that's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's little stuff like that that I think helps get the messaging out there that no, we need to take this seriously. They did uh, another. Uh, there's another project that's that's ongoing it's meant to restore Cleveland's tree canopy because it's so diminished. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we built up 40, 50 years ago and now the population is getting smaller and people are moving away. And what's left is a lot of stuff and some of it's kind of broken down depending on where you are. So there's an effort to restore the tree canopy that First Energy signed onto, which blew my mind. Um, and I think that those are the types of things that people need to hear because they need to hear that, no, this is a serious problem. And even the people that are responsible for this, you know, the, for the development and for 
pollution and, and they're, they're starting to sign on to these projects and it I can yeah. see it being very difficult being just dragged along behind the horse you know <laughs> it's pulling your body and, and you there's no way to stop them when they have the full the full the full steam ahead you know yeah I think that's the part you know the central Ohio communities project was an attempt to uh, to get those communities here doing the kind of stuff that you're talking about you know in the Cleveland area and again, we, it's not like we don't have some successes, but I do think we picked the wrong place to try to do that <laughs> because the forces are very powerful financially, governmentally, lock holds on, you know. So one of the projects we're trying to do is to a uh, land project uh, to try to save any of this land and to save the riparian corridors in particular. And there's possibilities here if only we can, um, you know, shake loose I think the interest is growing, but it, we're way behind, in my opinion, and being in the center of the state and being so close to Ohio State and, you know, the state government, I think, doesn't help. I think we're, uh, it, there's a lot of dominance. Do you, do you think that creative writing could be used as a tool to help that initiative? I mean... Even something as simple as, as getting people like a bunch of poets together and having them write and then, then printing those out and just handing them out to people, you know. I, 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 and you sent that question and I uh, have almost no answer for it. I, I wish I did. Um, I think you probably so, it probably would help I mean, in some ways, um, you know, poetry in general slows things down. And at least that was always my, my sense. Uh, you know, I'm going into the schools to help slow down the moments and, and give the, and, and yet open up what's inside that's often not seen because we're moving so fast and doing so much. So poetry, I think a role it could play is get people to stop. And maybe when they stop, they won't need all that consumption not need that sense that you have to do more, do more, do more, which is, I think, what the development is all about. So I can see some ways, but it's still formulating in my mind. Yeah. And you, you had said earlier, you had compared poetry to um, putting together the Central Ohio Community Project, that, that, that vision, that sense of seeing and imagining. And I could see that playing a role, too, because people they'll they'll walk past some, some litter on the ground and i'll admit i haven't like picked up any trash on the ground and, and thrown it away since covid i'm not gonna like touch someone's <laughs> covid cup but i i think that there's there's a difference between walking past that cup and reading about like a beaver's habitat being destroyed and and being put there in a visceral way and but mm -hmm. i don't i don't know how to take that and and spread it you know i've always been interested in activist writing and i think there are ways to do that but unless you're amanda gorman on the national stage who had a very brief moment where she was able to deliver very powerful words to an entire nation um i don't know how else to get that message out there yeah and part of my struggle is and if we're being you know this is we're being honest here right <laughs> jeremy uh, is uh Okay, I'll just be blunt. Uh, who the hell cares? <laughs> yeah. If if, if uh, another poem gets written that's moving about the environment, I I disagree with my own statement, but at the same time, I decided 
another poem's not going to do that much, mm-hmm. even if it's a really fine poem, uh, because there is so much that needs to get done. And I, I'm only I'm not judging anybody who puts their time into the, the writing you're talking about doing. It sounds marvelous. And the, write, the poem that she read and uh, that moved people, I don't think it's, I'll just be blunt, I, I don't know that it's enough. I, don't, I know it's not enough. Can it play a major part? I'm not sure. Part, again, one of your questions is what can poets do? I'd say write less. Mm. Uh, and take, I was gonna say write, take 20% of the time that I know what it takes. It takes a whole lifetime to write poems. Almost lifeblood, I mean. It takes everything I, it took everything I had. Um, I, I wish we could take 20% of that and not put it into more writing, but put it into visualizing and encouraging what we're calling, this is our, ne- our most recent project, what's the next world? And I think we might need poetic vision for that, but it might not be in the form of a poem or even an article. Maybe it's in the form of an action you know, like gathering people together and building a sense of community of action. Is that making any sense? I don't know. That's where I'm feeling like push some of the, I think poetry energy is is, is so essential, but I don't think it necessarily has to go into a poem. Actually, I think your comments tie right into your sense of place where there's this symbiotic relationship between a person and their environment. And I think what you're describing is just a redirection of that energy. You have, you know, your relationship with creativity and using that creativity instead of just siphoning some of it off and using it towards something that's more directly, you know, activist. It it might be that. And And again, I'm not prescribing anything for anyone else. All I'm saying, I'm trying to describe, and it's been four years now, and I'm questioning is, has this, has, is this have any advantage? But uh, I was gonna talk about three high school kids. We've got this project called the Next World Conversations, which we just wrapped up in January, where we brought in, because of COVID, we brought in really knowledgeable people to talk to, just one-on-one conversation between two people who know the food systems and what next world do they want to see? Yeah. And I'm working with an environmental anthropologist from OSU Marion, and we're putting we're putting those conversations into into a book and a and a workbook for for to help just just okay we can't come out of COVID the same. Everybody's been so many people have been saying that we don't want to go back to whatever was normal before because normal was destroying the planet. So, so we put these together and, you know, we'd have 25, sometimes 50, 60 people. And suddenly these high school kids from this one school that I knew of in Granville started coming and they were actually swelling the numbers of our, of our attendees. And I finally said to the teacher whom I happen to know, why don't we have a conversation with them? Yeah. And so that was just on Thursday night and these three, one of your questions you sent is a sense of hope. <laughs> they're the ones who give me hope. Because when we ask them what their next world looks like, I said, whatever we know, we know the next world is going to be their world. So why shouldn't we give them some voice? And they were so articulate and so knowledgeable. But I think one of the main things they said is they would like to see 
instead of concentrating our lives on accumulating each, each house having its lawnmower, each house having its big flat screen, everybody separated out, they want community. They want people on the streets of Granville, Ohio, uh, trying to think about new currency, uh, local currency. That was one of their big ideas that came out. They listened to the conversations from all these experts and they distilled it into a vision of the future. <laughs> and that's the kind of, if, if that's making sense, looping back to what we were saying a minute ago, I think that's poetic energy because naming something well is poetic energy, is it not? Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely it is. I mean, finding, finding the right words for something is a large part of what poetry is because you just wanna say something as accurately as possible that impacts others. And sometimes a well-branded idea is exactly that. And again, you're, it's, it's part of the converse, the questions that you sent that got me thinking some of this. And also one of my student interviewed me a couple of days ago and, and it, it, they were asking about poetry and activism too. And I, I was trying to think, well, what the hell do they have to do with each other? And that's what I've of course come down to. And if you take it back to uh, what Robert Frost said, you know, back in the 1930s, that all thinking is metaphor. And, 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 uh, and that's been proved out by a whole bunch of people. But, you know, when we, society unpacks itself or when society puts itself together, it's putting itself together around a bunch of metaphors. Hmm. And, and I thought, oh, right, maybe, you know, like the manifest destiny, you know, that was a clearly obvious metaphor that dominated our, our, the U.S. for so long. Maybe the job of poets is not only to write good poems about the environment, but also to supply and not supply propaganda or, you know, preach, not too interested in political poetry, but maybe our job is to put our shoulders to the wheel and come up with metaphors that matter. Not that that's enough either, but the metaphors might generate action. Okay. <laughs> maybe I'm going on in a limb here, Jeremy, but that's just <laughs> making me think. <laughs> well, I mean, these are the conversations that I think need to happen. And I think what we're doing now is, is or what you're doing now is brainstorming. Just what, what is, what options do we have? And I've got some books on environmental poetry and, and a lot of you know, the, the forewords in these books are, we're at a loss, but we need to do something. You know what I mean? And, and at a certain point, you just gotta start trying stuff and see, see what sticks, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Oh. Well, uh, would you like to read another sample of your work? Because I, I'm yeah. interested to see how your work has shifted. So you said you, had you were writing some songs. Yeah, I've been writing songs, but I, I don't think I want to read one of them out loud. I wouldn't mind going to my la latest book. You asked for a final poem, and I, so I thought about one from, you know, much closer to the present <laughs> than the one I started with. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, I, I've got one. That would be great. Absolutely. And it is from Chile, and it is informed by my climate work and the, also the work we were talking about, about Chile and what countries do. And so it's for the Strait of Magellan, which is where the poet I'm translating, Christian Formoso, is from and lives. And that area is often called the end of the world. So the poem is a sequence of five longer you know, poems called Five Days at the End of the World. They were all written in, in Punta Arenas, Chile, in a sequence of five days. 
Um, and I'm just going to read a snippet of just about five snippets, and they kind of flow together, hopefully. And they are very influenced by Christian Formoso. <laughs> Place the wind on a post and spin it. Like those children's games where you cannot reach the ball passing and gyrating over your head. So here the world draws in its air, as Christian says, breathing in a wild rotation. I move slowly, a frail letter, like a candle or a sail trying to burn upright or at least not drown. The wind is blind and I am deaf. I watch the signs for how to smile or not, for all the pasajeros holding on in the winds to the wires of the world. Greg blames it all on Los Humanidades, each crowned scholar scrambling for life in a little hole in that grand tree holding on with pickaxes and well-trained teeth. Look at the world on fire down below, the overturned cars, the tight hearts of twin explosions, the children gunned down with their little backpacks on. But here we are eating our Greek scrolls, baked with dusk. Here is the thick jam of theory to make palatable the grit of the bones. Raphael is buying bananas today, far off in Santiago because tomorrow he will feed the orphans cereal and toast for breakfast and guide them through their games. He wants to make me feel the words of his faith, walking them for me forward and backwards. Sometimes he falls into them like a welcoming bed, he says, tracing a cadence that balances him through the deaths. For me, he is Alasha, the brother who wants to bring this Ivan close to the fire. I hold up the words of his book from this far away and try to touch their scars as they fly down the tunnel. On the day of the dead, the eyes of Magellan wake on his pedestal beside his expansive strait. They are still aghast at their bright and frightening luck that this channel may lead to glory. How many villages across the Pacific would he have to burn to show the power of Christ, armor, swords, and cannons to impress the recalcitrant kings? Can he see his own death three months away from this bronze visage, the 500 years it will take to spread the local wars around the world? Now that the graves are empty, we guide their souls through the streets. They need canes and crutches at first, but gradually learn to scrawl their names in awkward letters on nearly every empty wall. Only later will they begin to float on winds, seed the clouds, return to their place of birth. They climb into the bells, open dawn with sirens. They stare back at us in our children's hooded faces wandering around the square. And who will I visit here if the world is now filled? Father of the spiral house borrowed from the snail, mother of the seas, sister whose songs escape me every day. I am a sail and a candle still two wheels following the knife edge of the strait. The disappeared remain so, but there is no grave that does not hold their names and no stone anywhere where I must not bow down. Wow. Wow. Thank you. So I don't know if it's about climate change, but it's definitely about trying to take in the world. <laughs> no, I, I think that fits. I and. And if so, it, even if it doesn't, it doesn't have to, because I just want to hear your reading. 
That's excellent. Thank you very much for sharing. Um, Terry, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you very much. And for the fine questions and the conversation, really, right? I mean, I think we're on the same, we're on the same page of questions anyways, <laughs> as to what, as to what poetry does in this time. I would agree. I would agree. All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. Thank you for coming in, Terry. Thank you very much, Jeremy. It was fun.